Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And as we uh, do that, I want to introduce a couple friends of mine that sat all the way in the back. Um, So John and Candy Adams uh, are from Village Missions. John is actually the, are we saying new still or is that done? Newish executive director for Village Missions. So he uh, took the place of um, Brian Wexler and uh, he's doing a, a wonderful job. So the director of our mission is here. So I want to remind you of something. Dan is a good guy, and he is not messing up that bad. And if John wants to sit down with you with a notepad, refuse. Chapter 16, Genesis. Um, I want to read verses 1 to 6. I know we covered this last week, but just kind of as a... uh, I want this to be somewhat seamless as we start at verse 7. So chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant, or I gave my servant to your embrace, rather, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so very much for this beautiful day. Lord, the beauty of your creation, seeing the sunshine, but Lord, the beauty of your people, how you have called us out of this world, this world that my brother Mitch has just freshly reminded us of where we live, Lord God, and the fact that such were some of us, we have been plucked out of this place. We have been redeemed and now given the incredible message of reconciliation. And so, Lord, this world is in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, my Lord, I I pray as we see things get more and more away from the truth and more and more anti the truth, Father, give us a hotter, more fervent passion to herald the message that will rescue souls with full dependence on your spirit to do the work, knowing, God, that we're totally incapable to bring people from death to life. God, as we turn our attention to this passage, I ask that precious Holy Spirit would illumine our minds to the truth of the text. And God, perhaps there are 
things, I know I'm sure there's things going on in our lives that I trust you will apply this passage to. Father, help us to have sensitive hearts, willing ears, ready to receive the truth of the Word of God in order that we might glorify you, Lord, in a better, brighter way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says this statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I would imagine a good debater, maybe somebody who just likes to look at other angles of things, and maybe give a counterpunch to that and disagree with that. If you do, for some reason, you disagree with that statement, take it up with Tozer. I'm just quoting him. But, but... It is provocative. It does provoke thought to me. It really kind of stirs something in my mind and heart. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Now, think about, you think about all the different things we consider. We think about finances. think about sports. We think about hobbies. We think about church life. We think about our marriages. We think about parenting. We consider a, a ton of things, and At times when we get together, we have dinner, and we start talking, and we say, well, what do you think about that? Well, what do you think about that? What Tozer is saying is that all of that, everything is under submission to what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Now, the interesting part about that is that the natural mind, the fallen mind of man, doesn't want to think about God. As Mitch was reading, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That picture of a beach ball being held under the water, they're suppressing that truth of God in unrighteousness. I don't want to hear about him. And yet it's the most important thing about us. The reason I bring up that point, last week when we looked at chapter 16, verses 1 to 6, you guys, I... The point I was seeking to make was that it's astounding after chapter 15, now I realize 10 years between the two chapters, but after chapter 15, we come to chapter 16. In 15, you have all of the grandeur of God's covenant making with Abram, the promise that he makes to Abram that I will bless you, a multitude will come from you, so on and so forth. And then chapter 16, the very next thing is Sarai saying, God's taken too long. Now, before we stomp on Sarai and get a little bit too uppity, let's stop for a second and just remember this reality, that it was 10 years. I, get, I struggle with 10 minutes, and my keys cannot be found. 10 years, God has promised you will have a son, and all Abraham and Sarai are getting is older. And there's no kids. And Sarai, my guess, it's not in the text, and so I want to be honest with the text and say my best guess is Sarai thought the promise was made to Abram, but it wasn't made to me, so therefore maybe I'm not even needed to be in this, and maybe at this point the best thing we can do is help God out, give him a hand, and we can get my servant Hagar. So let's get my servant Hagar. You can take her as a wife, and we can completely neglect what we know from God. One man, one woman, holy matrimony, 
man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife, singular, will completely negate that, and you will have multiple wives. And from this servant, who will become your wife, she'll have a child, that child will be the child of promise, and God's taken care of, we're taken care of, and it's on our own terms. And Abram, right there, on that razor's edge, could have said, no, no, that's terrible. No, are you kidding? Remember what God said? Remember the design, the whole game plan of husband and wife and so on and so forth? Remember, But instead, all it says is he listened to the voice of his wife. And so he takes Hagar, and Hagar gets pregnant. This plan's working great so far. Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt, and Sarah cannot stand it. Her blood's boiling at that look she's receiving from that woman. I can't have kids. I can't have children from my own husband, but this woman can't. And it just becomes too much for her to be able to, to handle to the point that then she comes to Abram and notice, please, beloved, notice the very next step after the sin is Sarah's blaming of her husband. Now, you know, it's kind of funny because if you ask people whose fault is, who is at fault here? You know the answer. Adam. <clears throat> because they're all, this is a big pile of sin going on here. Sarah's wrong, Abram's wrong. If there is a victim, Hagar comes close because she's not even discussed, she's not asked. There's nothing there where Hagar is given the option. It's just, my property, you take her, you have a kid, what's your problem? Do this. Well, the problem is it works. And she has, gets pregnant and then looking at contempt of Sarai, and it says Sarai started to mistreat her because Abraham again folds like a cheap lawn chair and says, yes, go ahead, go ahead, you treat her however you want. Rather than saying, no, 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 let's remember Sarai. And then even at that point, there's two opportunities where Abraham could have said no. Could have said it when she proposed it to him, could have said it when she came and started blaming him. He, he, right there he could have said, you know what, this is wrong. whole thing's wrong. I was wrong, you were wrong, we misused Hagar. This is done, Sarai, we're done. But rather his response is, she's your servant, do whatever you want with her. And it says that she treated her harshly. The same language that's being used in reference to Egypt when they're in captivity. I don't know exactly what she was saying to her, how she was treating her, but terrible treatment of Sarai to Hagar, to the point. A pregnant woman says, I'd rather go out to the wilderness by myself than sit here and live in this misery. And so she flees. All this, guys, because Sarah and Abraham forgot who God was. Not forgot in the sense that they can't receive it. If you were to ask Abraham, hey, is there a covenant God made with you? Yes. Does God exist? Yes. Is he sovereign? Yes. But I'm impatient, and I can't wait any longer, so let's help him out. Their focus of who God is is skewed. They lost their vision of him. They lost the clarity of who God was and acted in impatience for expediency. And now we're watching some of the fallout of what took place here. And so what I want to draw your attention to is three very simple points. And the first one is God pursues Hagar. This is verses 7 and 8. If there is one major thing that, there's, there's numerous, beloved, but there's one major thing that really hit my heart in studying this text this week, it was this thought. 
there's no one pressuring God to pursue Hagar. God doesn't have to do that. There's there's no person, there's no human being, there's, there's no pressure on God to go after this woman. If the passage simply read that she fled from her, period, then we go to chapter 17, we probably wouldn't think of it all that much. Yeah, we might want to know the rest of the story, but we would say, well, that's too bad. There's nothing pressuring the Lord to seek after this woman in the way he does. But he does. The sovereign of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who calls all things into existence from nothing, says, I will pursue her. Now, really quick, I noticed the text says the angel of the Lord, and I keep saying God, so I'm giving away my interpretation. God pursues Hagar. This concept of the angel of the Lord, um, there is some debate on this who exactly this person is, whether this person is an actual angel, a messenger sent from God to do his bidding, or if this is God himself with a manifestation of Almighty God, or this is specifically Jesus Christ and this is a Christophany, uh, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. I am convinced for for reasons, I'm not going to go in great detail this morning on this because I want to keep moving through this passage, but I'm convinced that this is God. I'm convinced because of the response from the woman and because of the rest of the way the text reads and because of other portions in the Old Testament that make me think this is actually Almighty God who is coming back to her. Whether it's God the Father, God the Son, you can split the hair all day if you wish. But I want to say I would not lose any sleep if you disagreed with me, and you shouldn't either. Because of this point, a messenger sent from the Lord is there to communicate on behalf of the Lord and communicate back to the Lord. So therefore, it is the Lord. It's just like the prophets when they say, thus saith the Lord, except for it's an angelic being, if it's an angelic being. For other reasons, I'm convinced that, no, this is actually God. There's a difference, I think, between the angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord. So I'm going to continue to refer to him as God, um, but you know where I'm coming from, at least now. So verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her. I love that word found, uh, as if he was looking. Uh, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. Now this woman is at a well, and this well is getting close to Egypt. It's, It's always fascinating to me why God let her go so far into the wilderness on this journey. This well by Shur is getting close to the border up by Egypt. She's going back home. God comes to this woman and tracks her down. Now, just imagine the terrifying journey she has uh, gone through. The reason I want to spend a little bit of time on this is because of the second half of this passage. We had four, we've, Amber and I have four kids, and when, when she was pregnant and we were there at that moment waiting to have a child, it was just always on my mind to be ready, to be ready to respond, whether she calls me on you know, work phone or cell phone, or I don't even remember um, what we had at that time, and waiting to hear, you know, I'm having the baby, it's time to go right now. There is a comfort, I, I, you can sense a comfort in your spouse, in your wife, when she knows he's ready and willing, and, and that drop of a hat's going to be right there to go with me, like a good husband should, like the way it should be, in my opinion. This woman has absolutely no sense of security whatsoever. 
going out to the wilderness by herself, pregnant, fleeing her master, master's wife, running away, not knowing what's going to happen to her. So what does, that, what does that tell us? What that tells us is that must have been torture living there with her. Because, you know, we naturally have this self-protective... Um, uh, we naturally are seeking to protect ourselves. And so, okay, here's your option. You can stay here, we'll feed you, and you can live here. And you're under Abram, who is a patriarch, and he's a great guy, and he's got the covenant promise of God. Or you can go out to the wilderness, and when you're out in the wilderness, there's all kinds of animals. You're going to be walking. You don't have any food. It's going to be treacherous. Which one do you think? I'll take the desert. What does that tell you about the kind of treatment she was receiving from Sarai? And the reason I make that point so strongly, beloved, is we must be very careful when we, when we start to make Bible characters our heroes. The Bible characters are there to show the greatness of their God, not the greatness of the hero. So when we see David knock down Goliath, we say, wow, isn't David great? No. No, his God's great. He's a fallen man. He'll prove that. He he will prove that over and over and over again. Abram and Sarai are fallen people. They're not not the, 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 the patriarch who are so far above us. No, they're redeemed people. These are fallen people who are making a mess of their lives because they do not want to wait on God's providential care. Unlike us, right? And so the Lord seeks this woman out in her distress. And the term I would put, guys, on this passage is that it's bittersweet what the Lord does here. There's a sweetness to it because God God seeks her out. God finds her. God gives her blessings. He tells her about future blessings. But man, there is some really heart-stopping difficulty in what he shares with her here as well. So it's a bittersweet thing that he comes and says to her. But we're still recognizing this fact. This is the pursuing God, the God who pursues people. Also, please notice, not the deistic God who wound the clock and stepped away. This is a God who is involved in the lives, the personal lives of people. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, please, please notice this in your Bible, not Hagar, husband or wife of Abram. Never once in this text does God refer to her as the wife of Abram. And by the way, never once does he ever refer to Sarai as the mother of Ishmael. I think that's important because it points to the fact that this was man's doing, not God's doing by any stretch. He doesn't recognize her. She's the servant of Sarai, not the wife of Abram. All right, back to the text. And he said to Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, this is God, much in like I think what you see in Genesis. After they sin, they go, they hide themselves. And the Lord says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And they find him. He says, we were naked. Who told you you were naked? All this back and forth questioning that God is asking Adam, this has everything to do with Adam. Not with God. God is not searching for information. This is the all-knowing God who knows the beginning from the end. Much like with our kids, sometimes we'll say, why did you do that when we know well why they did it? 
Or when you're playing hide-and-go-seek, you know, you know, where are you? And you see their little feet dangling under the chair. You know, where are you? You know exactly where they are. You're communicating with them. You're seeking to make a connection with them. When God comes to her, he's saying, where'd you go? Where you come from? So on and so forth. God is causing her to be thinking. Please notice nowhere in the text do we see a slight little bit of her fear. Uh, my thought behind why I bring that up is that usually when an angel has an appearance, one of the first things they say is, fear not, or don't be afraid. Here, the angel of the Lord simply comes to her and approaches her. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now at this point, there's no reason to lie. Why not? Because did you hear the title he gave her? He knows where she came from, right? He already gave away. Servant of Sarai. He knows where she came from. He knows what's going on. Her response, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now the next statement made by God. So we've seen the pursuit of Hagar. I want you to look now at God informing Hagar. Look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. I can't help but think that that was just a knife into the heart. Not only because she doesn't want to go back, but look at the journey she just made. Look at what she's already gone through. And now the angel of the Lord's coming to her and saying, I know that you've run away. I know you're at the, getting close to the border, almost to Egypt. I want you to turn back. Return to her, but don't just return to her and grit your teeth. I want you to go back. I want you to submit to her. It was wrong that you left. Now, we would all say understandable. I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, for sure, but go back to her. I would imagine at this point in the conversation, that is just devastation to her, being told to go back. But he's not done informing her. Look, look down at your Bibles. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now remember, guys, the whole point of this entire chapter is Sarai said, I can't have children. And now God's making a promise to this this, this woman who was taken, this servant who was taken, and God's promised her, I will give you a great multitude. You're going to bear many children. This is the sweetness of this. Remember, it's bittersweet. This is some of the sweetness of it. At this point, many people considered barrenness, the incapability of having children, as judgment from God. And so this is God himself saying, I will enable you to have children, and more children, and more children. What is that first, I would imagine, knowing my my wife, and knowing my mom, the first thing that would come to her ears is, the baby I'm holding is going to be born. She didn't know whether she's going to live or die traveling through this desert place, and now the living God has told her this. And by the way, don't miss this point. When we see these things said by God, please notice that there is no other option. Thus saith the Lord. Nowhere in the text does God say, this might be, or you may have a multitude. This is the sovereign king of the universe saying, this is what's your future. 
This is what's going to happen. How do you know? Well, he's the one that sees all things. She's going to call him that in just a second. The sovereign king of the universe is informing her of her future. You will have this vast, vast multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, Behold, and listen to this, guys. This is, this is so cool when you think about all the things that he is saying to her. I'll multiply your offspring. You will bear a son. The Lord names the son, which is a great thematic study throughout your Bible when you see God giving the names to people. But then there's a bitterness here. It says, you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because God heard in her affliction. But then he says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And as I pondered this this week, thinking carefully about this, what he's telling her here, that's why that word bittersweet is the only thing that came to my mind. Because as you, as you consider this, God comes to her and says, you're going to have a vast multitude. Uh, you're going to have a ton of kids. And they're going to have a ton of kids. They're going to have a ton of kids. Gonna, all these, this is a great blessing that's upon you. And you'll bear a son. Your son's name will be Ishmael, which means God hears, because God heard in your affliction. The end. That would have been great. But by the way, he's also going to be a wild donkey of a man, which is basically getting at the point of he is going to be an untamable warrior type. Just this guy that lives from day to day for what he wants and what he can get, and he is going to be consistently in the midst of fighting. Violence will follow him. And I believe she's also saying, he's also saying, violence will be following his offspring. I don't know, moms, how would, how'd you do with that um, when you're told this? What it came to my mind, I was thinking about Simeon. When Simeon comes to Jesus and he tells Mary, and there is a sword that will pierce your own soul. That bittersweet prophecy of you'll have a son, so on and so forth, but it's, it's going to be painful for you. And here he tells Hagar, Yes, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a multitude, but there will be ever-present fighting in the lives of your descendants. And you can see that throughout church history, throughout biblical history, but you can see that throughout history with the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael always at war and the great battling that's always there. God, God is saying what will be. And he'll rule over and against his kinsman. Now, I don't know about you, my first reaction, if I were to hear that, would be some kind of uh, expression of fear or of hurt or of anguish to hear that that's the future. Yes, there's blessing, but man, look what's going to happen. The passage is so rich because the woman is enthralled with the messenger and not the message per se. Now, I have no doubt that at some point, Hagar stepped back and started thinking, man, i got to make the trip all the way back to Syria. i got to submit to her. i got to live in that terrible, terrible place again. And then I'm going to have this child, and this child's going to have another child, and they'll have another child. And they'll consistently be at war and fighting, and they'll be a brutal people. I'm sure she had that thought at some point, sat down and thought through all of that. But, beloved, what is so interesting about this text is the woman's response to the angel of the Lord. 
why it's fascinating to me is I am very curious, and I don't think the scripture touches on it at all. I'm very curious. Prior to this encounter with God, what was going on in this woman's life spiritually? She's from Egypt with all their foreign gods. Who does she live with? Who does she serve? She serves Abram and she serves Sarai, who've been for 10 years waiting on this promise to be fulfilled. These are the ones who are the God-fearers. These are the ones who, who are worshiping the one true living God. Remember, we're told over and over, Abraham keeps building an altar, right? He's worshiping God. He's serving God. He's waiting on the promises of God. And by the way, Sarai and Abram are going to be the ones who will actually take her and use her as a possession to try to get a child. See, I'm, I'm curious, very curious from the text, what did this lady have any understanding or relationship with this God prior to his visit here? Or is this the first in her life? I don't know the answer to that question, but I find it stinging that the one who is in covenant with God is the one that treated her so poorly that she fled. That's just, just a sad piece to this this story. But let's look at Hagar's response to what she just heard, but more importantly to the one who just told her this. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. It's an ESV translation. This woman seems more taken aback by the the one who spoke to her, than the message that he spoke to her. Hagar confers a name on God, which you don't really see. I, I, I believe one commentator said she's the only one, but I did not trace that back, the only one to actually put a name on him, to be the one that puts the name on him. But she calls him the God who sees, or rather the God of seeing, the all-seeing God, the one who has the, the best view of all things. His vantage point supersedes the vantage point of anybody. God's knowledge, but also notice he's the one who cares for me, God's concern for Hagar. You are the seeing God. You're the, he's the one that showed up. He called her the servant of Sarai. He knew where she was coming, where she was going. He told her to go back. Then he told her, here's what the rest of your life is going to be. What kind of encounter is that when somebody shows up and tells you all of that? Who am I talking to? I've met some very fascinating people in my life. Nobody comes close to doing something along these lines. I think to some level she had an understanding of who she was speaking to. And this is the, this is the saddest irony of the chapter, is that here's Abram, here's Sarai, who've completely lost focus of God's sovereign care in following his promise. And here's Hagar, who now for the first time has this really clear glimpse of who God truly is. So, so Abram and Sarai, the ones who were in covenant with him, blow it, and in their blowing of it, here's Hagar who says, I've seen the God who sees. I have actually seen the one true and living God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And here's Hagar saying, I've seen him. I know him. I can tell you what he's like. To the point she doesn't even have a name. She just says, I'm going to call you uh, the God who sees. And then as usual, as you see in the Old Testament often, 
there's a name of the location, um, the well of the living one who sees me. If you look down at your, at the Bible, uh, your Bible, verse 13, it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lehay Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And again, that name is the well of the living one who sees me. So here's the God who sees, here's the well of the one, because this is where he came and met me. By the way, it's just a sidebar thing. It is so interesting when you start picking up themes in your Bible. And one theme that I hadn't thought very carefully about, but started looking into a little bit, is that every time there's a well involved. I mean, think about this. We could call this the other woman at the well, Right? Jesus meets the woman at the well. It's just very interesting seeing the different themes in Scripture and drawing those out. I don't want to read too much into it, but when you start seeing it over and over, uh, it makes me curious. Up to this point, we really have no information regarding Hagar's faith, or lack thereof. We don't know just where she was in her understanding of God, but now that he's come to her, he's revealed himself to her, this woman says, I have seen the one true living God. I've seen the one who sees everything. He is all-knowing. And what's so beautiful about that, again, beloved, is this overarching theme that we've seen throughout the entirety of the book of Genesis so far is that there is no reason that God has to do what he's doing here. God in his grace revealed himself to her. Now, let me um, take a moment for just a sec. I don't know about you, but I get gun shy. I get pretty shy when somebody makes a statement. When I think of God, I like to think of him as fill in the blank. God is a a really nice father. God is is a very tender grandfather. God is a... And you start talking about all these things. And... In the back of my mind, I'm still hearing my dad's voice saying, that's great, chapter and verse. Because when we start saying this is what God is like, we are on a very, very thin thread. We need to be so careful when we start saying this is what he's like. And when we say, I, I think he's like this, or I, when I think of him, I like to think of him like this. In reality... It doesn't matter what you like to think of him as. If the only substance of why you think God is a certain way is because you like it that way, you've officially shaped a beautiful idol between your ears. Rather, rather, all we know about God is because he has revealed himself to us. I don't know about you, but I have some unbelievably dear friends in my life, just as you do. Some of you are them. The only reason I know you is because you let me know you. The only reason you know me is because I let you know me. The only reason Hagar can say, I know this God of seeing, is because God let her see him, let her know him. Beloved, then we pick up 66 books of God-inspired, blood-bought, Martyrs throughout the centuries, revelation of the living God to let us know who he is. And the thought 
that we would substitute what I like to think of when I think of him, for his, substitute that for the revelation from him, is mind-boggling. No, rather, I want to know God, and I want to know who he is because of what he has said to me about who he is. Sarai and Abram lost their focus. They lost their focus that he was faithful. They lost their focus that he was the one who always keeps his word. And they walked in sin to try to help him. And now God has beautifully come to this woman and promised her there's going to be a multitude. Please notice, nowhere in the text, guys, nowhere, does God tell Hagar that this is connected to the covenant promise with Abram. The reason that's important is throughout the passage, God never gives validity to their act as they helped him out. It's all going to be through Isaac. Remember, even when he goes to Abram and he calls Abram to sacrifice him, he says, sacrifice, take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. It's because that is the child of the promise. That's, that's the one that God has done. And as you see Ishmael and you see Isaac, you will see consistently these two held up throughout history and in this text and in the book of Galatians, which I'm toying with whether we're going there next week or not. You see Ishmael and you see Isaac. And consistently in this passage, God never once says, Ishmael is a part of this promise. Ishmael is a part of this covenant. Ishmael is the son of Sarai. Ishmael, he never gives validity to it because God is saying, I never asked you to do that. I never commanded you to do that. And I never put my blessing on that. You were in sin because you wanted expediency. So there's his justice. Then he pours grace on this lady, and you see God's tender heart as well, all at the same time. This is what's so amazing about the attributes of God, is there's perfect symmetry between all these different attributes we know of our Lord. His, his sovereignty and his love and, and his, his grace, none of these attributes of God are in conflict with one another. They perfectly harmonize with one another in every single way. And so, we are simply told this, if you notice, kind of wraps up the chapter. It says, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Think about that, the God who hears. For the rest of his life, every time Hagar says Ishmael and calls her son, here's that name, the God who hears. God, God heard me in my distress. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I made the statement to them, if my daughter were to have a child at the age I had a child, I'm a grandfather at 42. She won't, so I'm not worried about it. Um, That seems early to me, maybe not to you. 86. It's a boy. (laughs) See, the beauty of all of this is that this child is born, and yes, um, it is Abram's son, but this isn't God's fulfillment. This isn't God's promise. We're still going to wait till he gets a little bit older to show God's great power 
in the provision of Isaac, his son. Well, beloved, let me, let me just draw a couple points of application, and then I'm going to ask John to come and, uh, well, we'll do our closing song, and I'll ask John to close in prayer. So a couple thoughts, okay? As I work through a text, I always land on a couple points of application. Here I landed on about five, and I just picked a couple. And here's one that I think screams from the passage. There are far-reaching consequences for our sin that I don't think we even know. Abram and Sarai grew impatient. Sarai proposed this idea. Sarai in her sin proposes to Abram, so who in his sin then took it. Then they took Hagar, and they put Hagar in this very awkward relationship. Then she's pregnant with another man, or with a man's wife, uh, son, who is already married. Then she hates her for it. They look at each other with contempt. She starts treating her terribly. She flees. God says, you're going to have a multitude. And after you have that multitude, that sinful nature is still in the presence of that multitude, and they're going to be a terror. And they're going to be constantly fighting with the children of Isaac. And you will see forever bitterness and battles through these two people groups. Because Sarai couldn't wait. Now, I'm not just putting the weight on her, the pressure on her. Please recognize that. If anything, honestly, I put more pressure on Abram on this one than I do Sarai. That's not my point. My point being the incredible, far-reaching consequences to sin. As Adam tasted one piece of fruit, every horrific thing that has happened because of sin from that day to 2021 conspired, took place because of that act. And we see it in more of a microcosm where we can see our sin and the, the, the terrible things that come from it. So I want to lay a warning on you. It's on me, it's been on my heart this week, and I want to lay a warning on you. Beloved, if there it comes this time where you find yourself, you're in a weak spot, and in that weak moment, something appeals, something tugs at you, and in that weak moment, you have this thought, I'll probably get away with it. I want to remind you, just, just remember the name Hagar and the consequences of sin and how far-reaching they are. Because in a weak moment, we think nobody will know. It's not that big a thing. It's going to be okay. It's never okay. Number one, just before God, it's never okay. But number two, on this playing field, our sins hurt other people, us included. And it mocks God. It makes a mockery of God when his people do this kind of thing. So if you've got something that's eating at you, something that's tugging on you, and in a weak moment you feel that, beloved, Hagar, stop. Recall to your mind the truth of the word. No, what am I thinking? I will not disgrace him in this way. I love the response of Joseph when Potiphar's wife takes him by the coat and he says, how can I sin against my God? How can I sin against your husband? How can I do this? And runs away with his coat in her hand. Sin affects so much and hurts so many people. Beware. 
Watch for it. Number two. Two points of application. That's the first one. Number two is this. This passage of Scripture, Genesis 16, reminds us who our God is, that He is a God of seeing. He sees all things. He is the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. My brother asked me this years ago when I was just in like junior high. He said, if you ever find yourself, and he was, he was the kind of brother that he would give you a piece of advice and then give you three bruises. And so he was giving me the advice first. He said, if you ever find yourself, you know, you're going to be careful when you're talking about somebody or something. Ask yourself the question, would you do that? Our pastor is Jerry Kennedy. If you do, would you do that if Pastor Jerry was staying behind you? And I'll never forget when he asked me that question, I thought, well, maybe, uh, you know. <laughs> no, of course not. Or would you talk about somebody in a certain way if you knew they stood right behind you? Can I remind you of something theologically that I know, you, I know you believe? You've never once thought something or done something that God does not see. Now, if you're in Christ, if the righteousness of Jesus Christ is accredited unto you and your sin is accredited unto him on the cross, beloved, you have been forgiven. And the God who sees everything is the God who is kindly disposed to you, who loves you, who sees you in Christ. The one who is absolutely the greatest care for you is the one that sees all things. This is the greatest comfort. And it was a comfort to Hagar. Hagar said, you're the God who sees everything. But if you're outside of Jesus Christ, and right now you're stiff-arming him, you don't know him, God knows everything about He knows you better than you've ever known yourself. And there's absolutely no way to hide from the all-seeing eye of the sovereign God, who, by the way, happens to be the judge and jury. And it's his wrath that's poured on us. And so if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you, there is no way you can get off on this one. There's no way you could hide from him. He will not let you. There will be justice at the cross or justice in hell. Either Jesus Christ will suffer for your sin or you will in eternity. But there is no fleeing this marvelous, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-present King. And so my prayer, beloved, is that, number one, that would draw you incredible comfort, knowing your deepest pain this week, as tears fall down your cheek, the sovereign king is right beside you, fully aware of what's going on. At the same time, when you think he's not there, he's standing right beside you. Father, I thank you for your word.